everybody. Welcome to the Tech Analysts Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined again by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights in Strategy. Uh, Patrick, how's the weather going for you out there? It seems pretty decent out in Austin. Yeah, it's pretty decent. You know, we've had a really good week. And first and foremost, I'm glad to be here in Austin because <laughs> I... I I, sometimes I think I'm not in Austin more times than I'm actually in Austin. Yeah, I get that complaint uh, quite a bit. Here, uh, it was 71 one day. 48 hours later, it snowed. And now it's like 65 again. So it's been interesting. But I was just in New York this morning, and it was significantly colder there. So I guess I don't I don't have any dramatic complaints. Um <laughs> Uh, let's let's dive into some of the stuff that's happened since we last have spoken. I know first topic on our list here is the Apple iPad kind of education announcement that they made. I think this is interesting. Um, I, I guess we should point out first, it's not only an iPad for education. It is just an iPad announcement as well. Uh, but they had more emphasis on the scholastic side of it than they had had in probably recent memory, I guess, right? Yeah, that's right. And not only did they bring out an iPad with with a pencil at at the lower price, but they also brought out uh, software, uh, special software for classroom management and also for uh, creativity. And you know, it's interesting. Even though there's very little profit in the education market because everybody wants it free or or low cost Mm -hmm. microsoft google and apple are definitely turning up the heat heat here on the premise that the more comfortable the kids are using their tools and working having experience with the brand that that would translate into um uh, them using their tools afterwards yeah what what do you think about that premise you know, I, I, I think it's actually very true, right? You you tend to be indoctrinated into something, and then once you're in that ecosystem, it's very difficult to get out, you know? Uh, as many times as Apple or Android have made tools to try to make the transitions easier, it's still not a simple process. Uh, you see the same thing. I talked about it when we were talking about the GTC podcast we had before, where, you know, one of NVIDIA's greatest decisions they made was to continue to push CUDA, teach it in education, um, you know, offer up these tools sets and really bring people into that ecosystem coding you know gpu compute stuff on nvidia cards because that meant when they went to real jobs when they went to further projects they were much more likely to use uh, that product there and i think the same is true in the education group uh, and i think it's just true for consumers in general yeah i'm a little 50 50 on the fence on this if you're successful in school it translates to the workplace Apple dominated education for years that didn't translate to dominance uh, in the workplace. Essentially, you would use uh, Apple and Macs in school, and then you would go and use Microsoft at business. Now, work is changing, so I think that equation works once the gig economy picks up here, and there are even more people who are choosing their own tools to do their own small business. Now, yeah. gig economy jobs working for big companies, they s- typically these companies still want you to use the tools that they provide. So for instance, if you're a contractor for a company, they'll issue you a notebook and tell you what the tools tools to use. So yeah. this might work, it, it might not work, but I get I get the theory. It hasn't worked before. That doesn't mean it's not gonna work in the future, but takes 
this gig economy to, to really uh, become completely successful. I think one of the other benefits they have on their side this time around is that um, it's much more BYOD at these types of at, at employers now, right? Um, I think these IT departments have have become a little bit more flexible than they used to be in terms of allowing you to use the phone and and, and laptop you want. But I guess that's going to vary from from uh, uh, enterprise to enterprise. What other what are those uh, special education management features that did you like, right? What 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 kind of stood out there? So where I think so so first off, what I think. The, the net net of what I think is going to happen here is I don't see this as a wholesale let's we think we can replace the PC and Chromebooks because that's going to be really hard. Uh, if, if you're cost prohibitive, then iPads plus it plus a rugged case plus a keyboard plus plus um, pencil replacing the pencil yeah. could, could be very cost uh, pr- prohibitive and if if you've doubled down on let's say the um, Chrome and and even uh, Google for school, then your management infrastructure is Google, and, and you can use PCs and Chromebooks in that environment. So yeah. the central point is the browser. So where, where I see this potentially being successful is in areas where it is about creativity. It is about drawing. It's it's about VR. It's about AR. It's um, either one per classroom, or if let's say it's a digital art class, I, I can I can see this uh, I can see this uh, becoming successful there. Yeah, it's and from a cost standpoint, even though the beginning price on this I think is three twenty nine or two ninety nine for with the education discount. Uh, for the 32 gig iPad, you know, Wi-Fi, you have to, the pencil's an extra $100. And then if you want that rugged keyboard case um, that Apple is kind of promoting on its site with it, it's another 100 bucks. So you're looking at a $500 investment, not a $300 investment as the initial price might indicate, right? To get all the features that Apple was was talking up about the new product. That's right. That's right. And it, it's not only about cost, but cost definitely plays. And I, I ironically think that the biggest challenge is going to, to for Apple and for that matter, Microsoft, to toss out Google for school management because it's just so easy. I've yeah. seen Microsoft uh, improve their tools and make them a lot easier to use. But I still think at this point, it's a lot easier to manage it with Google. Yep. Uh, speaking of Apple, we do have another story on our list here. There was a report out of Bloomberg last week that basically stated that it had uh, a time frame starting in 2020 and a project code name, which I'm blanking on right now, uh, that Apple intends to begin replacing the Intel processors in its computers with Apple-designed chips. Right, so I would think of this as you know the same uh, kind of route that Apple took in the mobile form factor, right, where they started designing their own A series silicon and doing their own custom CPU design. Now they, you know, just recently in the last generation have done their own GPU design. Um, it it uh, uh, the the goal appears to be to kind of widen that out some, uh, make higher performance parts, and perhaps displace the Intel components in, you know, say your MacBooks. Um, what are your thoughts on 
this is not a new rumor, right? We've heard this before. We've kind of, there's kind of been this general assumption or kind of rumbling that, oh, this was always kind of what Apple wanted to do, whether they would actually ever have the capability to do it was in question. Uh, what do you think is, if anything, is different this time around? So I think this contract is negotiated every two years, and every two years this, this same rumor comes up. So there, there is a lot of negotiation going on, but I do believe if Apple ultimately doesn't get what they want, uh, we will see Apple trying to put their own chips into MacBooks. Now, two, two, reality, two or three realities come, come to play. Uh, and I think the most important reality is it's not a, a simple maneuver to run a Mac OS app uh, on a Mac OS app designed for x86 there is no magic compiler that will make it work flawlessly no. and as performant on a, an ARM-based architecture, right. even if it's a really good high-performance architecture. So just like we saw in PowerPC to Intel, uh, I think we'll see uh, you know, there will be a lot of work to go there. So I think they're going to start off with a bridge product, which, which would be we, it's a clamshell. We're going to call it a Mac. But it's going to use a a higher featured version of iOS that multitasks better, uses a trackpad, and uh, you know gulp uh, even a mouse. Yeah, that's it's- the way that I think we'll 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 see this introduced because strategically, uh, iOS is where it's at for uh, for for Apple. Yeah. Um- yeah, I could see some of that uh, occurring. That would be an interesting switch or shift based on kind of what I think the prevailing theory is after this Bloomberg report is that, you know, Apple still has the advantage, right? They control the operating system and they control the hardware if they were to develop their own chips. So they could, you know, I'm sure they have versions of Mac OS that can operate on the ARM-based architecture that uh, exists in the current A-series processors. Um I could see that the uh, uh, it, it could be a bridge product like that that does it, or it could still be, you know, hey, we're willing to take this dive in. Keeping in mind that Qualcomm is already doing something like this on the Windows environment, right? The Windows on Snapdragon initiative is attempting to run an operating system that's predominantly been on Intel processors and AMD processors, obviously, and run it on an ARM architecture. Now, they're doing it early you know, in 2018, 2017. Um, so they have maybe more of a performance hurdle that they have to get over than Apple would if they continue to be on this path through 2020. Um, and Qualcomm has to work with partners. They have to work with Dell. They have to work with HP. They have to, you know, work with Lenovo and Asus. And then they have to work with Microsoft to try to get this emulation layer to work or get applications recompiled. Uh, Apple has every advantage, potential advantage to do this, to switch over the OS, switch over its own internal applications, which are obviously the most widely used, and then um, sort of strong arm the developer community that they have into being able to recompile. And it would be, rel- be, be more easy on Apple than it would be on, on an x86 platform to just say, okay, go recompile, and now things will, will operate more smoothly. Um, I think there's I a lot that of... Gets, I guess ahead. that gets to... You know, why would somebody do this? And I think Apple's strength in Mac OS uh, and with their developers is significantly more difficult than it is for, for iOS, where if you don't play, you die. Right. And 
You know, a great example I think is is how many Mac applications are available on the Mac Mac OS App Store. Sure. And you know, uh, it's I feel like it's been a challenge for Apple to get developers to even put Mac apps on the current Mac OS that are designed for X86 to go in the store. Uh, how much effort are developers going to going to put into a platform that they may not even see as strategic? Uh, anymore um yeah so so you know you see these um macs being updated at a increasingly slowing speed Mm -hmm. uh that sends the message to developers that this isn't strategic so i think all this technology is possible i'm just looking for the probable environment and i just don't see mac os app developers cracking the code to to redo this because I think that they might be asking the same question is why? Why would I do this? Yeah, and and I think, you know, considering the fact that Mac is about 10% of the notebook market, um, so that that kind of argues to your point a little bit more um, if these app developers need to, how how much time and resources do they want to spend developing towards 10% of the market, even though it is the big sexy brand that is Apple? I think a counter the argument of kind of a slow iteration is you would have the Apple group say, well, the reason we're not updating our parts or our systems quickly anymore is because the innovation from Intel has slowed down uh, and they don't have new uh, differentiating processors or platforms to really make any changes, right? If you look back at the change they did make uh, with that, you know, the touch bar, that did not go over well. Um, and they, but, but in fairness, like Intel hasn't really brought them anything since Thunderbolt that really kind of fundamentally changed what they could do. And, you know, if you, if, if Apple wanted to, if they, if they went this route on their kind of lower performance notebooks, maybe you get that two-day, three-day battery life machine that Qualcomm is talking up as well currently, uh, but you get that on the Apple brand and, you know, whether or not that would be, you know, software limited because people wouldn't want to do their uh, uh, application updates, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. Um, I, but I just, I think this story coming from Bloomberg from a fairly um, Apple-reliable uh, person there who's just kind of known to have these types of things with dates and stuff with with code names is interesting uh it puts a lot of it introduces a lot more questions and uh, ideas than we'd maybe seen previously uh let's talk a little bit about the microsoft they've had a fairly significant re- reorg occurring in the top levels uh of the company there um windows has moved around uh we've seen the head of Surface ascent, uh, leave the company, be replaced. Um, which of these reorg moves stand out to you, and, and what uh, kind of immediate impact do you feel like they could have? So I feel like it's, um, first and foremost, this is the new Windows. And the new Windows is a Windows as a service, and that's true on the client side, and that's on the server side. And on the server side, it, it's about Azure Stack, which is already happening. Azure Stack is essentially Windows Server plus cloud hooks that allow you, allow you to run uh, your apps on-prem and then uh, burst and also r- run another part of the application on Azure Public Cloud. So it, 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 you know, it's the, uh, what, what's the right word? 
not the waning of Windows, but uh, Windows is subservient to the service that uh, it's providing. I, I think that's the number one goal. And by the way, none of this is surprising, and I don't think any of it is troubling because this is exactly where uh, where the market uh, is is going. Yeah, I, I think. I think in general, anytime people see top level employees move around, they get a little nervous. They get a little a little antsy. Um, I, I think Satya has done a, a great job, kind of managing all of this. I do think um, seeing now I'm blanking on uh, Surface Surface Leads who just left. What was his name? Um, well, the Surface so Panos actually got promoted. Yes, and he took the title of Chief Product Officer. It was uh, Terry Meyerson. Yeah, there you go, Terry, uh, in charge of all all of Windows and all of Surface. Uh, who who left? You're right. It does pause. I mean, Terry had a great career at at Microsoft, and, mm-hmm. and him leaving in, in a way puts the exclamation point on the it's it, it's a new future and. The prior lead of Office 365, which which is one of the best, I'll call it um, um, Office as a service, uh, puts that exclamation point that services, online services, online distribution, is is going is the future of Microsoft as opposed to uh, kind of a. Um, uh, you know, pre- pre- preload the operating system and pay for it. And we've seen baby steps of this uh, already in terms of licensing and how the way updates are done and even even the way naming is done now. Right, right. Do you think um, Terry leaving – Terry was, was probably the biggest proponent of the Windows on Snapdragon, Windows on ARM push. Do you think any of that – subsides do you think there's any risk that um the the new leaders aren't as into that initiative so the future of the pc is more like an always connected uh pc so i think if that interest wanes there's an interest in the entire category of 250 300 million devices like that sure and that wouldn't that to me doesn't make any sense but you know i would like to hear the new leadership at build reinforce just how important the always connected uh pc is uh, going going into going into the future yeah i'd agree there all right uh any last thoughts on the on the microsoft movements or uh jump into a little bit of amd news yeah like uh, the final thing that i saw was they've instituted an ai oversight oh, right. or that directs directly into satya and, and this is, once again, Microsoft getting ahead of the curve, understanding that AI will bring, you know, some massive societal changes, whether that's people not driving their own cars and transportation, uh, people losing their job and losing their jobs and needing retraining right. uh, or retrenching. And even this whole idea of fake news, I think, is, is connected to this whole notion of, of something that that AI we will be able to do really well. Heck, you can, uh, you know, with with just a single server in your basement, you can do overlays. You can put somebody else's face on top <laughs> yeah. of somebody else's body and have them say things they actually didn't say. Yep. Uh, yep. And I'm glad that they can throw. Essentially, I see this as a group who can float, throw the flag and say, hey, guys, uh, that's pushing it way too far. Uh 
you can't ship this product <laughs> the way that you've defined it with the uh, with the types of things, or or we have to put this safety net in place to make sure that um, you know the robots don't take over. I would uh, I would appreciate that, that that little bit of oversight for certain. Um, I posted a story up on Market Watch yesterday, I believe it was, kind of as, as a roundup of a couple of, of, of things that have occurred, a few things that have occurred with AMD over the last week that I thought were maybe individually not interesting enough or, you know, uh, meaty enough for a complete story, but kind of uh, as a group told an interesting, you know, pointed an interesting direction for where AMD is currently at, right? So um, in Consumer Notebooks, AMD is now, I think as of two days ago, three days ago, shipping in Inspiron 13 and Inspiron 15 notebooks with their Ryzen mobile processor. Now, this is, these aren't the first Ryzen mobile parts. There was uh, an HP machine that we had seen, an Acer machine that we had seen. Uh, but from Dell, what's interesting here is this is, it's not their XPS flagship brand, but this, their Inspiron 15 is, is a higher end more luxury style design. Um, these AMD systems range from 600 bucks up to $1,000 in price tag. And that's important because AMD had previously, you know, before Ryzen, before Ryzen Mobile, had been left out of any of the, uh, what would you call them? Not flagship, but just kind of the, the, the tier one systems at these OEMs. They'd always been relegated down to the budget boxes. And that's not how you gain brand notoriety. That's not how you impart on people that you're making a high quality device. So the fact that the Dell's willing to put these into, you know, unique form factors, these, this, the Dell, you know, is a two in one, the Inspiron 15, 7000 series is available in a two-in-one um, with touch and all that stuff. So it's it's putting it on the same level as Intel's flagship 8th gen parts, which is, I think, a really important step for AMD in that space. Yeah, so I agree with everything you just said. The thing that I'll, I'll add on to that is, is this is going to be – Ryzen 7 will actually be at retail in North America. And that's a, a huge, a huge deal. Typically, HP, and this has been true over the last 20 years, has has been a lot more aggressive and successful with with AMD. Uh, but in this uh, Ryzen slash Epic uh, age, I see Dell being as aggressive, at least on paper. And uh, my next step for me is to see this to translate into real sales. Sure. Dell Dell has historically relied so much on Intel for its its marketing. Uh, funding. I mean, literally every Dell, every Dell client PC event that I've been to in the last seven years uh, has been co-logoed with with Intel, uh, and that's not true uh, for for everybody's uh, events that I go to, including HP, uh, Microsoft, and and for that matter, Apple. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Some of the other stuff that, uh, so AMD also announced that Adobe Premiere, uh, which is basically the flagship video editing software, uh, was going to support the Radeon Pro SSG, which is a unique product in that it combines a Vega GPU with HBM memory, but then it also includes a 256, not I think 250 or 256 gig NVMe SSD on the card itself. And because of the design of the Vega architecture, they implemented, you know, the memory controller is more flexible. They call it the HBCC, the high bandwidth cache controller. 
that can access multiple tiers of storage. And so it has the HBM2 memory as its, as its top highest performance cache, if you will. And then the NVMe storage is on there as a much larger cache. And the, uh, the, the goal here is to be able to edit 4K, 8K video, 360-degree stitching um, in, in 4K resolutions without having to touch disks, the, the, the primary disks on the system that have to go through other interfaces and different hops, right? So the idea here is that you're getting a massive amount of storage on a graphics card that does, admittedly, it runs slower. It's not like you're getting 256 gigs of HBM or GDDR5 or something like that. Um, but because the Adobe software is now coded specifically for it, it knows how to take advantage of it. It doesn't have to pass through uh, the PCI Express bus back into the system to the main processor and then back out to the graphics card for crunching. Uh, it accelerates everything. And what's interesting in this point is I, I think it's well understood that the NVIDIA Quadro brand has kind of dominated pro, vis pro visualization for a long time. And I don't think this, this product's going to shift that dramatically, at least not overnight. But what it does do is it creates a product that NVIDIA doesn't really have a competitor for, right? They don't have any technology to do this same type of thing, at least not yet. And Adobe implementing support for it means that developers that are engaged in these very kind of cutting edge editing uh, environments and applications will take note and they may try this out and they may, they may really love it. So they're going to sell some of these cards, but it also, I think long-term allows Amy to get their foot in the door with some of these design houses where, you know, they've just been used to buying Quadro, used to buying Quadro. So that's what they're going to do. Suddenly uh, a, a, an engineer or a, 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 an editor comes to you and says, Hey, I have this project. I think this, this card is going to do really good for, for accelerating my workload. Now Radeon Pro is in the door. Now maybe they look at Radeon Pro uh, from a you know cost performance uh, aspect in other products during the next refresh cycle, right? Um, so I think it's it's an important thing for them because it's unique, and it's important for them because it is an attempt to get the Radeon Pro brand into place uh, that it has struggled to be before. Yeah, I really love this solution for for a bunch of reasons. First off, it's it's solving a real issue that real people have and secondly like you said it's 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 distinctive it's differentiated it's ironic we have to do this much work to get around the latency uh, and performance issues with PCIe Gen 3 and yeah, you know yeah. an I, an IO hub but that's just you know welcome to our world uh, <laughs> Nvidia built an entirely new switch to get around the PCIe uh, bottleneck but but, but here we are, and I'm hoping uh, that AMD can get some traction here, maybe get a Halo, uh, Halo product uh, around it, uh, because, like you said, NVIDIA just completely owns this market. Right, right. And the third and final <laughs> uh, piece that was uh, Yahoo Japan, which I believe is kind of, it's basically completely separate from the Yahoo that we know of over here. It's, it's more of an ISP uh, over there has is using Dell PowerEdge servers with Epic processors in them for uh, deployment, not testing, but for actual deployment. Um, and the uh, uh, I think it was the CTO of uh, Yahoo Japan was quoted as saying, you know, this is the beginning of a long term, or begins a significant new relationship. And they talk specifically about lowering total cost of ownership. Um, 
So that that's I don't really have any more detail on that about what specific workloads they're using it for, but they talk about virtualization and wide scale rollout and all that. So it's again another opportunity to get to get a deployment solution in there. Obviously, it's displacing something, so it's got to be displacing Intel. They weren't replacing um, AMD Opteron servers or anything like that. So this is this is this is market share growth. This is foot in the door growth, and uh, with a fairly sizable customer at least uh, in the in the Japanese Japanese markets. So yeah, you know, um, Yahoo Japan isn't a joke uh, like Yahoo America right. is here. In fact, it's it's um, a joint was a joint venture between Yahoo and SoftBank, and SoftBank, we all know what they do, but they're also a very uh, a big time respect in in Japan. And I, AMD is doing what they need to do, which is bringing out uh, premier customers who are very specific on why they're using the technology. And may, you know they're they're not as specific as, as I think you and I would have both have liked to have done, but uh, these folks always also like to to keep this stuff uh, serious. <laughs> yeah, and it and it differentiates them from other non Intel processor vendors who keep talking about the tire kickers. Yep, out there that says, hey, we're we like this technology, but we don't like it enough to actually deploy it and buy it. Right. our production workloads that's that's what i i've been seeing a tremendous amount uh, of lately yep and i think all three of those things combined just kind of prove out some of the momentum that amd had gathered in 2017 is at least continuing here through q1 and into q2 of of 2018 uh the last little bit of news we wanted to cover is a kind of i don't think i don't know if i want to call it the final guidance but the most recent guidance updated guidance from intel on uh, the Spectre Meltdown um, vulnerability patches, I guess. Uh, basically, in a, in a new microcode revision guide, which is a, a PDF that kind of lists all the architectures, version numbers, um, where the, the fixes are in production level, um, they added a stopped status to, uh, to its microcode updates relating to Meltdown and Spectre flaws that would suggest that they have uh, will have no patch to fully remove the vulnerabilities. And in fact, Intel did confirm that that was the case. Um, now, so essentially what this means is there are some architectures where they have put in place, they said either we're, we're not going to produce a, a patch for this, a microcode update for this, either because the we, we couldn't find a way to do it without they didn't say this, but they said they couldn't find a way to do it. And I assume that means they couldn't find a way to do it without totally destroying performance. Um, or they talked with the customers who are still using this. None of them are on Windows 10. They might be, you know, they might be in, in contained systems, as they call them, things that are running Windows Vista or XP still and point of sale systems or, you know, inventory management systems that are not connected to external networks. Um, and so it's interesting to see. I, I think all of these are at least seven years old. We're talking about Gulftown, Harpertown, uh processors, Clark's field processors, if these architectural names stand out to you, Bloomfield, this is for consumer markets, that would be the core i7-920, so like the first Nehalem type stuff, so it's it's a it's a very different thing. And Penrin. of course... That was, Penrin was in there too, which 
shocked the heck out of me. That's like the first core, I think. In- Intel Core 2 Core Solo. 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so some of these are obviously quite old. Um, I don't think it's a, it's, you know, it's not a good thing that Intel decided not to patch these. I think it's interesting that the, you know, if you're if you're a consumer or a you know a business using some of these processors, still the likelihood that that these microcode updates would have been provided to you in a BIOS update by a vendor, either way, were, was going to be as close to zero as you could get without actually being zero. So I don't I don't put a lot of uh, a weight on the fact that they basically have called it quits on some of these. But if as I as I scroll through the document, the amount of architectures that they did address is still substantial and as far back as they go is still is still you know pretty surprising do you do you read anything into the fact that they have now stopped in some of these areas or do you feel like they've done a pretty good job and a fast enough job correcting some of this i think intel's done a great job on this whole thing and and i may be in in the minority but you know, having worked for AMD for over a decade and having worked at o- at OEMs nearly a decade, uh, I, I have never in my life seen this quick of response. You know, Ryan, when you open up microcode, it's like Jenga, right? You, mm-hmm. you take a piece out and the whole stack can come piling on your head. And that relates to compatibility of programs uh, or or and or the performance of programs. So I think Intel's done a great job, and Intel is saying 90% uh, coverage over the last five years. I think they're being conservative because when I look at the charts, yeah, it looks more like 95% when you overlay the it's volume high. on top of that. So it's 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 high. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't I don't have anything else to add to that other than you know I. I'm sure that's not the end of this story. They obviously have a lot of stuff that they're still dealing with, you know, from from a legal standpoint and from, you know, monitoring future architectures. I know Intel did announce some eighth generation parts, new chipsets, and I got a couple of questions from uh, external media. It's like, oh, are these the chips that have the fixes in them for Spectre and Meltdown? And I know these are these these do not include that. Um, and obviously. Intel probably didn't go out of their way to say, oh, yeah, here's some new processors. Oh, yeah, these still don't have any hardware uh, alleviate uh, uh, any hardware fixes for these security vulnerabilities. Uh, but they but they did not. So we'll be watching for that. You know, they did say that they would have something in late 2018 that did have hardware changes for it. So still very curious what that's going to look like. Uh, what performance impacts it might have and does it improve it over the software iterations that we're working on now? I think it'll be interesting to track all of that as we, uh, as we move forward too. So, yeah. So Ryan, I, I I guess what I'm expecting is I'm expecting new architectural uh, exploits that people will find. And it's because, um, you know, it's securities whack-a-mole and every year it's something different and sometimes there's different reasons uh, for doing this. So I'm expecting more, and I think Intel is absolutely gearing up. I had a, ch- had a chance to uh, uh, talk with uh, some of the security leadership a few weeks back, and not only have they created a new direct report directly into BK, who can flow, throw a yellow flag and literally uh, pause or stop a product development mm. that they see as potentially uh, risky, but uh, Intel is changing almost all of their processes to get behind this with, with the notion that 
these issues aren't going to go away. This isn't one and done. This is going to be a perpetual challenge that we're going to be experiencing industry-wide. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Uh, we'll be watching that throughout the rest of the year and probably for the rest of our lives, unfortunately. Uh, that's going to be it for the show this time, guys. If you want to find um, past episodes, ways to subscribe, RSS files, you can either find us on iTunes, you can find us on Google Play, The Tech Analysts Podcast, or you can go to thetechanalysts.com and you can find all of our, our links there as well. Uh, and on Twitter, if you want to follow me, I'm at Ryan Shrout, Patrick is at Patrick Moorhead, so you can see what other witty and or observant commentary you might have through have for you throughout the week. So uh, <laughs> or annoying, or too. yeah, I got to set the bar at some point. All right, which point it is is up to, is up to us each and every day. So, all right, everybody, we will see you in the next episode. Thanks, guys. Bye.